Well, it is way more comfortable this time than it was the last time I stood at this place. Because three feet behind me was a giant hole with water in it. And, uh, of course, it's the baptistry. And uh, Austin, my dear friend, said to me, Art, you need to be careful because about three feet behind you is a tank filled with water. And I thought Austin was pulling my leg. Um, I knew that there was a baptism going on. It was a wonderfully edifying experience. But I certainly thought a couple of men in blue suits would come and lay something back down on here so that I wouldn't trip and fall into the water and be the next viral YouTube. Um, Austin wasn't joking. We got to the last verse of the last hymn. And I said, Austin, where are the guys in the blue suits to put the lid on the thing here? He said, no. No, you're going to stand there with a the baptistry. You need to be careful. And uh, it was, I must say, unfortunately, one of the most unpleasant experiences I've ever had. It was a great joy to be here, uh, but I'm thankful that it's not like this. So if I fall, it won't be because of the baptistry. It'll be because I'm just clumsy, and that's just the way it goes. I would like to express my great gratitude to Dr. MacArthur for the privilege of of being here over the years. I've had the great opportunity to be at the university and to be at the seminary and even to be at the church. But this is a great uh, privilege for me, so thank you, brother, very much. Of course, you do understand, brothers, that whether you're talking to 50 people or 5,000 people, at the end of the day, it is the same thing. Our job is to re-talk God's talk. We don't create the talk. The talk has already been given to us. Our job is to re-talk God's talk. So again, whether there's 50 or 5,000, in one sense, it's an irrelevancy. We are butlers. We are not chefs. We don't make the meal. We just get it to the table without messing it up, right? And uh, so with that in mind, I would like to invite you, please, to open your Bibles to John 17. And we will pray and ask the Spirit of God to come and speak to us this afternoon. Our Father... We draw near to you this afternoon on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come in his name. We ask you, O Lord and God, for those effects that can only be produced when there is that mysterious union of word and spirit. And I pray, O Lord and God, for these dear brothers from their respective places of ministry. That during our time together you would comfort, console, confirm, challenge, correct, convict, captivate, convince... And convert. We promise to give you praise and glory and honor for your talk to us. 
this afternoon. Amen. What do the following share in common? What do the following share in common? Thunder Mountain Railroad. The Matterhorn Bobsleds. Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Forbidden Eye. The Mad Hatter Teacups. Or my personal favorite, Space Mountain. For those of you with a palate uniquely trained to appreciate the most urbane features of American culture, you can quickly identify the category to which each of these belong. You say, all of these are Disneyland attractions. Oh, the men at the Shepherds Conference are so sharp, yes. But more specific than that, they're the attractions that most frequently leave their riders feeling nauseated. Especially after a big, warm, creamy, chunky bowl of clam chowder. But why is this the case? Well, brothers, it's owing to the laws of physics. Such attractions subject you to the pressures of centripetal force and centrifugal force. Centripetal force pulls you toward the center of a rotating body. Centrifugal force pulls you away from the center of a rotating body. But in either case, somebody on those rides gets smashed. Centripetal force, centrifugal force. A dynamic that exemplifies the distinct difference of movement between a pre-Pentecost Christianity and a post-Pentecost Christianity. You know this, of course, dear brothers, from your own study of the two volumes that comprise the Spirit-inspired writings of Luke. Not that anybody gets smashed or nauseated, but when you read what Luke writes, it's near to impossible not to feel the force of movement that either pulls you in or thrusts you out. In Luke's initial volume to Theophilus, the movement is clearly centripetal in that his gospel pulls you inexorably toward the center, a geographical center, the city of Jerusalem. Why? Well, apparently something significant will take place there. In Luke's second volume to Theophilus, the book of Acts, the direction of movement changes dramatically. Luke begins at that geographical center, but almost immediately displays a decided pushing away from it. Because of something significant that occurs there, the centrifugal forces now prove overpowering. What is this something significant that accounts for the radical reversal of movement? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, followed by his ascension into heaven, his exaltation as the universal Lord, and the outpouring of the indwelling and empowering Holy Spirit, all occurring in Jerusalem. And yet, as if an irresistible law of redemptive physics had been triggered, the consequences of that something significant cannot, will not be confined to that place. One way or another, it will reach to the ends of the earth. Now, friends, it is with this profound salvation history shift in view that Jesus prays this particular portion of his prayer in John 17. As you well know, the public ministry of Jesus has come to an end. 
as has his more intimate and private ministry with the disciples. They leave the upper room and by the light of the Judean moon, they make their way toward a familiar destination, the Garden of Gethsemane. But somewhere along the way, prior to crossing the Kidron Valley and entering into the garden, Jesus pauses to pray. Why? Well, the text doesn't say. But Josephus tells us that the Kidron Brook was at this time running red with lamb's blood. It was Passover week, don't forget, which meant that thousands of lambs were being sacrificed and the Kidron Brook was the assigned dump site for all of that residual blood. It may be that the sudden sight of it stopped Jesus cold in his tracks. A horrifying image of a violent death that foreshadowed his own as the ultimate sacrificial Passover lamb. And so he turns his attention to prayer. The broad structure of it is very simple. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his 11 disciples, Judas having been recently dismissed. And then in verses 20 to 26, his intercession broadens to include all of you who now embrace the apostolic gospel. For our purposes here this afternoon, I would like you to sharpen your focus onto this middle section, Jesus' prayer for his disciples, in which you can easily identify his request on their behalf. His initial request, verse 11, is for unity. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. His next request in verse 15 is for protection. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, all of which now brings you to his very last request in verses 17, 18, and 19. A request, my dear brothers, that I would like to summarize for you in a single sentence but only after highlighting the three observations upon which it is built. Here, then, is the first. An authentic Christianity assumes a meaningful worldliness. An authentic Christianity assumes a meaningful worldliness. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world... I have sent them into the world. You say, but Art, I don't understand. Why are you reading verse 18 before verse 17? To keep you, my dear brothers, from your natural inclination. Extricating verse 17 from its context and infusing it with an understanding that is the byproduct of your systematic theology that, though true perhaps, can easily result in the loss of a full appreciation of what's here. Oh, yes, to be sure, this is a prayer for sanctification, as you will soon see. But here, a sanctification for gospel ministry. A sanctification that is inextricably wedded to the act of being sent into the world. And, of course, if you are indeed familiar with the Gospel of John, you'll recall that back in chapter 10, Jesus has already used this very same language to speak of himself that he, in fact, was the one that the Father sanctified and sent into the world. 
in the gospel of John, sanctification is for mission. Be careful not to read your systematic theology into this. Sanctification is for mission. It's why this is such a pressing issue on the heart of Jesus. He is about to do to his disciples the very thing his father had done to him. Look at it. As you sent me into the world. Now you know this verb. It speaks of a person who has been officially sent on a specific mission bearing a particular authority by virtue of the one who sent him. Something Jesus repeatedly claims to be true of himself in the Gospel of John. In fact, right here in chapter 17 alone, Jesus speaks of the Father sending him five times. And now, in like manner, Jesus would send out his disciples. It's the point, you see, of the comparative conjunction that begins verse 18. As, or if you prefer, in as much as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. It's the very same idea. They would be sent on a specific mission bearing a unique authority by virtue of the one who sent them. Now, as you well know, of course, brothers, in a full and final sense, this sending doesn't formally occur until after the resurrection, but so certain of it is Jesus, he here speaks proleptically, as though it had already taken place. But this is no surprise to you. You know the text. In the Gospel of Matthew, the accent is on the sovereignty of the one who sends. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Mark's gospel highlights the consequences of response to these sent ones. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The third gospel stresses the Old Testament foundation for this message entrusted to these sent ones. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. In Acts, the burden is on the universal extent of this mission assigned to these sent ones. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here in John's Gospel, chapter 20, which is a recapitulation of this here, the focus is on the missional continuity of these sent ones. Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, they each bear their own respective emphasis, to be sure. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. But the command they each share, spoken by the resurrected Christ, I would remind you, is impossible to misconstrue. Now, my dear brothers, do you intend for your people to take these commands of Jesus seriously? Then, quite frankly, you are left with no other alternative but to say to them, to be authentically Christian requires you to be meaningfully worldly. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So that you must say to the people of your congregation, life has not been given to you as an experiment in self-indulgence. The pursuit of bigger houses and faster cars and more shapely bodies and more exotic vacations and more exhilarating sex. 
You are here for the accomplishment of a mission as binding upon you as it was for those original 11 men. So that while we do not seek to perpetuate the apostolic office in its foundational prominence, we do seek to perpetuate the apostolic mission in its enduring significance. And it is not advance the cause of right-wing politics. Advance the homeschooling agenda. Shut down all the Planned Parenthood clinics. Clean up the elementary school playgrounds in your neighborhood. Listen now. All of which are fine things for a person to engage in as a Christian individual. But none of these reflect the agenda assigned to us by the Lord who has determined our principal means of influence as the church. To be authentically Christian requires you to be meaningfully worldly. And yet now, in direct relationship to this very issue, you need to be exceedingly sensitive to a pair of vulnerabilities to which we as evangelicals are uniquely susceptible. Cultural gluttony and cultural anorexia. You say, cultural gluttony, what's that? Gorging on the world. Binging on the world. Gluttonizing on the world. Often cloaked in the guise of wanting to win the world and legitimized by the use of terms like contextualization. These are Christians and congregations who seek to become just like the world. To the end, conversion occurs in reverse. The world's values, the world's objectives, the world's attitudes become our values and our objectives and our attitudes. But my dear brothers, have you figured it out yet? Those who seek to become like the world end up like the world, except they are not liked by the world because the world recognizes the hypocrisy. We are called to be the salt of the earth, not its sugar. And what does Jesus himself say about salt that ceases to be salty? It's not even fit for the manure pile. It's the catastrophe of compromise, cultural gluttony, consuming culture to the extent that it conforms a Christian or an entire congregation into its image. In reaction to this, the church has not uncommonly succumbed to its equal opposite, cultural anorexia, a decisive and radical withdrawal from the world. Purging oneself of the world, ridding oneself of everything to do with the world so that you isolate and then insulate. And by and by, the church becomes an enclave. The church becomes a ghetto. As theologically pure as the driven snow, perhaps, but little more than an island of irrelevant piety. Have you fallen prey to this? It's easy to do, isn't it? Almost imperceptibly, unconsciously. Oh, but if you pause to think about it, you may realize that you don't have one meaningful relationship with a non-Christian person. 
that you can't even remember the last time you shared a meal with an unbeliever in your home. In fact, the very thought of it would make you become filled with anxiety. What, what would I say? What would we talk about? Some of the Christians in your congregation may actually believe that the goal of Christian parenting is to do everything in their power to keep their children out of the world. I could not disagree more. The burden of Christian parents must always be to prepare their children to engage the world with a mind shaped by the Scriptures, a heart aflame with love for Jesus Christ, a courage endowed by the Spirit of God, and a holy compassion that recognizes the people of this world not as the enemy, but the victims of the enemy. And yet I submit to you, my dear brothers, it is contempt for the unbeliever that will fill the hearts of our children if by the time they get to be 14 or 15, they have no meaningful relationship with those Jesus refers to as harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. Our children will forever remain indifferent to their suffering until they share some intimacy with the sufferer. Isn't this an imitation of Jesus himself? who did not regard his equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. How does John say it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. The eternal word has come into the world. And in turn the call to follow him. Is a clarion call to a worldly Christianity. As you sent me into the world. I have sent them into the world. Whether by way of cultural gluttony or cultural anorexia, you abdicate your identity as a Christian if you have no meaningful engagement with this world for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. An authentic Christianity assumes a meaningful worldliness. Now you say, well, I don't disagree but I'm not sure how to do this. I mean, how can I be both meaningfully worldly and authentically Christian while not falling prey to my predispositions to cultural gluttony or cultural anorexia? And this, my dear brothers, is a great question. It's the right question. I, I, I wonder if Jesus ever considered it. Think about these men here. Has Jesus considered what they would face by taking this sentness serious? Jesus knows that the enemy would immediately begin his work of frustrating their forward progress. How? Among other things, by the means of a relentless onslaught of theological and ethical impediments. The denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as Paul has to contend with in 1 Corinthians 15. The denial of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as Paul has to deal with in Galatians. The denial of the full deity of Christ or the full humanity of Christ, as the Apostle John must confront. 
How will they straighten out the mess that's going on in Corinth with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What are they to do with the man who's become sexually intimate with his father's wife? How are they to challenge the Christians who refuse to work for a living in Thessalonica ostensibly because they are waiting for the Lord's return? Christians suing each other in court, two ladies in Philippi who refuse to get along, Christian husbands who in the name of headship exploit their wives, Christian wives who in the name of equality refuse their husbands' leadership, legalism, antinomianism, mysticism, syncretism. They will face such things if they intend to be worldly Christians, sent Christians. And so will you. So how will they survive it? And persevere through it? And overcome it? Oh yes, an authentic Christianity assumes a meaningful worldliness. But now the second observation that must be made? A meaningful worldliness presupposes a consistent sanctification. A meaningful worldliness presupposes a consistent sanctification. Or, if you prefer, in a more contemporary vernacular, while verse 18 will never allow you to be theological without being missional, verse 17 implies that you must never be missional without being theological. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. But what is... Jesus even mean by this term sanctify? Well, it's a term that belongs to a family of words that speak of holiness, which of course drives your vision heavenward because the term holy, first and foremost, is an adjective used to speak of God himself. He is the holy one, the most holy one, the one who is holy, holy, holy. It's not an indication that God is better than you. It's an indication that God is separate from you. That he is transcendent, set apart, distinct from his creation. Derivatively, then, people and things that are set apart for him are said to be holy or sanctified. For example, Aaron and his sons were sanctified, set apart for a sacred duty to serve God as priests. The altar on which they offered sacrifices was sanctified, uniquely dedicated to God for his purpose. In fact, all the furnishings within the tabernacle, and even the tabernacle itself, were said to be sanctified, separate from everything else for the distinct purpose assigned it by God. Now, brothers, there are a few contexts in which moral and ethical behaviors are associated with being holy, but even these need to be appreciated as the attending consequences of having been firstly altogether devoted to God, which is precisely what Jesus is getting at here. Set these men apart for a sacred purpose. And what purpose is that? You've just seen it. A meaningful worldliness, verse 18, that presupposes a consistent sanctification, verse 17. But this raises a huge question. How is this sanctification accomplished? The answer right here is by two means, one of which is explicit. Notice. Sanctify them by or by means of the truth. 
But to what is Jesus referring? Your word is truth. It is a staggering statement, this, but maybe more than you realize. You say, what do you mean? Jesus does not say, your word is true, using an adjective. Rather, he uses a noun, your word is truth. You say, well, Art, isn't it accurate to say that the Bible is true? Of course it is. The problem is, it doesn't say enough. Were Jesus to say your word is true, it would only raise another question. On what basis can you claim the Bible to be true? What is the standard of measurement by which you test the truthfulness of the Scripture? In other words, to merely assert that the Bible is true leaves open the possibility of a higher standard of truth to which the Bible merely conforms. But when Jesus says your word is truth, He is not merely suggesting that the Bible is accurate and reliable. He is declaring that the Scriptures are themselves the ultimate definition of what is true, and every other claim to truthfulness must be measured against them. That they are the criteria, that they are the standard. And in this case, well, if sanctification for the sake of mission is your aim, God's instrument of choice is the Scriptures. Or as I would suggest to you, the Christocentric scriptures. Keep in mind that just a few minutes earlier, Jesus unforgettably had referred to himself as the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That whatever the way is, whatever the truth is, whatever the life is, they are all inextricably bound up with Jesus himself. So that when you now read John 17, 17, Jesus is setting forth the Scriptures as the efficient instrument of sanctification, a book, however, that is not fully appreciated until its Christocentric preoccupation is recognized. You think of what Paul says to Timothy. How from infancy... You were taught the sacred scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about, brothers? Talk about the Old Testament. And the next phrase tells you everything, which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 5, Moses wrote of me. So we put you on a bus for half an hour and give you an Old Testament and say, have a good gospel conversation and show somebody the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you going to do? My brothers, the Bible is not a book of virtues. Don't preach it that way. Nor does the Bible even come close to resembling a textbook of systematic theology. Don't preach it that way. It is not the Bible, a compilation of 66 unrelated books sewn together in a single volume simply because they bear the quality of divine inspiration. The Bible is a book that tells one overarching story centering on one primary person, which to my mind is the greatest objective evidence for its divine inspiration. And it is set forth here explicitly as the efficient instrument of sanctification for engagement with the world. That success in this ministry of being sent would not hang on their powers of creativity, their skills at contextualization, 
their abilities to plan and execute a program pleasing to the palate of an unbeliever. The strength of their grip on the truth. Or maybe better, the strength of the truth's grip on them would determine their effectiveness as they seek to embrace Jesus' call to a meaningful worldliness. Which means, my dear brothers, that you have not won the day when you've convinced your people to buy a Bible. Your people have bought many Bibles, which in our in our day and age, is positively exhausting given the infinite choices. Paperback Bibles, hardcover Bibles, leather Bibles, imitation leather, bonded leather, true tone leather, genuine leather, calf skin, goat skin, Moroccan. Bibles with zippers, Bibles with snaps, Bibles with flaps, Bibles with their own stylish carrying case. I saw a Gucci one some time ago. Red letter Bibles, rainbow Bibles, men study Bibles, women study Bibles, students study Bibles, elderly people study Bibles, military people study Bibles, athletes study Bibles, hunter study Bibles, Thompson Chain Reference Bible, Schofield study Bible, Ryrie study Bible, MacArthur. I'd like to come back. I mean, I would. <laughs> Reformation study Bible, Arminian study Bible, semi-Pelagian study Bible, spirit-filled study Bible, small print, large print, giant print, thin-line Bibles, wide-margin Bibles, and of course, you can now choose from nearly every color of the spectrum, black, brown, gray, red, green, blue, pink, yellow, Lydia purple, cappuccino, and all of this still falls short of considering all of the electronic ones. Most of the people in our congregations have dozens of versions on their phone. So that we can no longer have the privilege of saying, open up your Bibles. And hearing that glorious sound of turning pages, we have to say, turn on your Bibles. That's the mark of the beast. We all know that. I bet I can find somebody who said that somewhere. Anyway, like never before, in the midst of all of this, brothers, like never before, I think all of us would concur, the church of Jesus Christ is marked by such a profound biblical illiteracy. And then we have the temerity to wonder why our influence in the world with the gospel is so anemic. The scriptures are set forth here explicitly as the efficient instrument of sanctification for engagement with the world. Oh, but my dear brothers, now hang on to your horses because this is something we very, very easily miss. There is also an implicit means by which sanctification is achieved. See, effectiveness in ministry is not the result of mastering the diagramming of Greek sentences. And the parsing of Greek verbs. And I'm committed to all of that. 
Did you notice it here? Let me ask you something. Of whom is Jesus making this request? Look at it. Look at it. Put your eyes on the text. Verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Who is this you? Well, got to go backwards. Verse 14. I have given them your word. Who is this you? Verse 13. I am coming to you now. Who is this you? Verse 12. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. Who is this you? Verse 11, Holy Father. You say, Art, you've lost yourself. Don't you know where you're all? You're at the shepherd's. Of course we know that Jesus is speaking to his Father. He's praying for goodness sake. What's your point? Just this. That while sanctification is brought about by the instrumentality of the Christ-centered word, the actual effectiveness of this word requires a work that only God himself can produce. Otherwise, the praying of Jesus here would be altogether inappropriate. Why pray? If the scriptures prove to be effective ex opere operato, that is, automatically by virtue of their own sacramental power, Listen, brothers, listen to this distinction. I'm not talking about neo-orthodoxy. You could put me in a catatonic state. I would never embrace neo-orthodoxy. This word possesses inherent power. But it is not a power that is efficacious all by itself. The scriptures possess a resident life, but all by themselves they don't produce life. God himself must make this inherent power effectual in people if this word is to sanctify them. It's not to suggest that anything at all is defective with the Word of God. It's to recognize that everything is wrong with you and me by virtue of sin and its residual effects upon us, which is why, which is why you must always do what Jesus here does. You must pray. And brothers, if it wasn't on the job description when you took the job, then you better jolly well make sure you get it in the job description because this is your work. You remember? You remember? Israel said, we want a king, man. We want a king like the other nations. We want a big, tall, handsome, charismatic king. And God gave them exactly what they wanted. And of course, when they realize that their offense against God is so egregious, they come to Samuel and, oh, intercede for us, Samuel. And Samuel says this, far be it for me to sin by ceasing to pray for you. That's your work. In David's masterpiece that exalts the revelation of God, Psalm 119. Have you ever noticed in the midst of those 176 verses, the dozens of times he begs God to do what only God can do? Open my eyes that I might see the wonderful things contained in your law. Teach me your decrees. Teach me your statutes. Incline my heart to embrace your laws. What does all of that praying imply? It's the reason the apostles devoted themselves not just to the ministry of the word, and catch the order and get the order right. Prayer and the ministry of the word. That in order almost always gets inverted and in and of itself that's revealing. 
Their dependence upon the immediate and direct work of God was absolute, as is yours. And here it is the implicit means, in tandem with the explicit means, that affects sanctification for mission. Observation number one. An authentic Christianity assumes a meaningful worldliness. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Observation number two. A meaningful worldliness presupposes a consistent sanctification. Sanctify them by means of the truth. Your word is truth. But brothers, now on what grounds can Jesus make this request of his father? Is it because these disciples are such good guys? Worthy and deserving? Is it owing to their impeccable commitment that they really are a cut above everybody else? But some of their greatest blunders are just moments away. There is only one reason this request of Jesus is not the epitome of audacity. It's because this sanctifying work of God the Father will be secured by the redemptive work of God the Son. Which brings us lastly to observation number three. A consistent sanctification necessitates a purposeful consecration. A consistent sanctification necessitates a purposeful consecration. It's what Jesus is getting at when he says in verse 19, For them I sanctify myself in a special way and for a special purpose, remember? And what purpose is that? The sacred purpose for which his father had sent him into the world, a theme replete throughout the fourth gospel, Jesus now consecrates himself for the cross. For them I sanctify myself. Look at it, look at it. Why? So that they too may be truly Sanctified. It's the very thing he requested of his father in verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So that what you discover here is that on the basis of his own act of self-consecration, Jesus will purchase the sanctifying grace he here beseeches his father to dispense. All to the end, that you might become a worldly Christian. But is this exactly right? For whom does Jesus consecrate himself as a sacrificial offering? Look at the text, brothers. Put your eyes on the text. And notice the specificity. For them, I sanctify myself. And in this context, to whom is the them repeatedly said in contrast? Well, just go back to verse 14 to make the point. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world. With whom are these them said in contrast? The world. For them I sanctify myself. This chapter has frequently been referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. 
and that for good reason. What were the two primary functions of the high priest in the Old Testament? To pray for the people and to make atonement for the people. To pray for the people and to make atonement for the people. Moreover, the people for whom the high priest would pray and the people for whom the high priest would make atonement were one and the same. The high priest did not, on the one hand, pray for the people of Israel, and then on the other hand, enter the Holy of Holies to offer an atoning sacrifice for the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hittites. Those for whom the high priest prayed and those for whom he made atonement were one and the same. His two priestly functions were coextensive. As the book of Hebrews goes on to make plain, all of these Old Testament priests were a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the great and ultimate high priest. And what's more, that Jesus has exercised this same dual priestly function in fulfillment of what those previous priests had done in anticipation. He prays and he makes atonement. He prays and he makes atonement. So for starters, for whom does this high priest pray? Verse 9. I pray uperaton. There it is. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. He prays for those who belong to him by way of divine prerogatives. Well, if the functions of this high priest are coextensive and Jesus Christ prays only for his own, for whom does he exercise this second priestly function? The making of atonement, verse 19, for them. I sanctify myself. I want to tell you something, brothers. You stop appealing to logic. Too much of your theology is bound up with logic. There's no need to appeal to logic. It's as plain as a pike staff. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is specific. In fact, we will take the time, but, 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 but as Bob was leading us in singing and read a portion of Revelation chapter 5, I mean, is it safe for us to say that the lyrics in heaven are satisfying to God? I mean, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> are the lyrics in heaven satisfying to God? Okay, well, so listen to what these angels sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from... It is, a, it is a partitive preposition out of every tribe and language and people and nation. Notice that it doesn't say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God every tribe and language and people and nation. No, you purchased for God persons out of every tribe, language, people and nation. This isn't systematic theology. This is exegesis. Now, brothers, I'm happy to live with the notion that theoretically the cross of Jesus Christ was sufficient to save a billion worlds of sinners. But you must understand that in the heart of God, there was a specific focus to the cross that was more definite than the provision of a mere potential atonement for all. For them, I sanctify myself. It's what the text says. A self-consecration that is specific and, notice, also purposeful. When Jesus died on the cross, he purchased a full salvation, a salvation that includes justification, 
a right standing before God on the basis of his imputed righteousness, a salvation that includes glorification, your future destiny in the new creation with sinless resurrected bodies, and in between these two great events, a salvation that includes sanctification, in this case, being set apart by the word of God for the purpose of meaningful gospel engagement with the world. You do understand, my dear brothers, of course, that there never would have been a lordship controversy had we not lost sight of what was really and truly accomplished at the cross. It's precisely what Jesus is referring to here. For them I sanctify myself. Why? Here's the purpose clause. So that they too may be truly sanctified. Father, what I'm asking you to give them this sanctifying grace by the means of the truth for the purpose of mission, I will purchase for them. And verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. All of which means for you as a pastor to be at peace with a congregation that fails to meaningfully engage the world with the gospel, with all due respect, my dear brothers, is to functionally invalidate the benefits that were won for you in your congregation on the cross. It was there that everything God ever intended for your people to be was purchased for them. An authentic Christianity assumes a meaningful worldliness. A meaningful worldliness presupposes a consistent sanctification. A consistent sanctification necessitates a purposeful consecration. Oh, I'm so sorry. So many words, so many words, too many words. So here it is now, all of it reduced to a single sentence. Sanctification for mission is the achievement of the crucifixion. Sanctification for mission is the achievement of the crucifixion. Sanctification, verse 17, for mission, verse 18, is the achievement of the crucifixion, verse 19. Really is simple, isn't it? Several years ago, while I was still pastoring in California, um, a church that we had planted in 1987. Oh, the church was maybe eight or nine years old. I tell you that I planted it so you'll know all the messes that were made were made by us. Um, one Sunday when our services were all done, we got in the car to go home. And I put the car in reverse, uh, looked in the rearview mirror to back up, and I saw my daughter in the back seat crying. I said, Sissy, what is it? What is it? She said, something happened in Sunday school today. I said, what? What happened in Sunday school? Tell me. She said, well, our Sunday school teacher asked us to go around the room and share prayer requests. And she said, uh, well, you know, Dad, we, we've been praying for my friend Brian at home. And I told everybody in the class this week, Brian came up to me and said, you know, Catherine, I think I may be gay. I'm not sure. What do you think about that? Catherine had a chance to share with him the gospel, and she said, Brian, I'll be praying for you. So Sunday school came along, went around the table. When it got to be her turn, she said, Will you please be praying for my friend Brian? He really needs the gospel. He's struggling and told me this week that he thought he may have 
same-sex issues, or however you say that when you're in the sixth grade. And she said, everybody in that class, including the teacher, turned on me and talked about what a terrible thing it was that I knew people who would admit that, who would struggle with that. She told me that, and I thought all the way home as I drove in the car, how in the world did this happen under my own nose? We never talked like that. We have always engaged unbelievers meaningfully. How did this happen in our own church? I didn't say anything for a couple of days. I was just dealing with the emotion of it all. And two or three days later, Lori and I got the kids around our kitchen table and said, we've got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. Once a month on a Friday night, we're going to open up our home. We will provide all the food you can consume, all the drink you can drink. You can invite as many kids as you want. One ground rule. No Christians. And it was positively magnificent. The opportunities over the next two years, once a month on Friday nights, we had, our our house would be teeming, 30, 40 kids in the backyard, in the family room, in the living room, everywhere. Uh, uh, The opportunities we had to talk with these children about the gospel, some of whom came to faith in Christ. The opportunity to speak to their parents, none of whom came from intact families. It was absolutely, only eternity knows what all of that will result in. But after that very first Friday night, after the kids had gone and we cleaned up the mess, I said to Lori before drifting off to sleep, why did it take me so long to figure it out? Why did it take me so long to figure it out? Fear. Fear, not fear of the unbelievers. The fear of what believers would say. A fear that was the consequence of failing to comprehend the accomplishments of the cross. Are you afraid? Have you isolated yourself and insulated your congregation and conveniently justified it as a commitment to purity? You have the promise God gave to Abraham that through his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. You have the fulfillment of that promise before your very eyes in Revelation 5 where you read that Jesus purchased human beings from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You remember that scene. John begins to weep. Why? The scroll of human destiny in the right hand of God will remain sealed and thus its contents aborted unless someone is worthy to slit those seals and inaugurate its contents. John begins to weep because nobody is worthy. And then he hears, stop weeping, John. There is a worthy one. And what he hears is the lion from the tribe of Judah. That's what he hears. He then looks. He then looks. And what he sees, same person, different perspective, a slaughtered lamb. And what John comes to understand is that this great victory has not been achieved by ferocity, but by humility. 
It's the point of the entire book of the Revelation. The Lamb wins. So you must not disengage. You must not withdraw. You must not flee the culture. Your chief shepherd is the one who has sent you into it. Not to serve the culture by enabling it to meet its own ends, but to infiltrate the gospel in a holy and subversive way with the gospel. My dear brothers, the law of redemptive physics has changed. This is the huddle. The game is played out there. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Sanctification for mission is the achievement of the crucifixion. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we love you. And we love your word. And we love the gospel. And like you, we are to love the world. Not by virtue of partnering with it. But filled with compassion for a world that will perish without the gospel of our Savior. This is our influence in this place. Strengthen all of us, O Lord and God, with courage. A courage that is necessary not just to engage the unbelievers, but to engage the very difficult believers. Thank you, O Lord and God. We love you. Amen.